as we revisit Acts 2 one last time. Mind you, open up to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. We've just been finishing the series with this idea of life in Acts 29, this, this idea that what continues on? What, what about Acts should stand out? And what can we revisit? What can we look at as we um, engage with the book for ourselves in the modern church? In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at a couple of specific uh, topics. Two weeks ago, I looked at the, the work of, of, uh, of the, the apostolic and prophetic elements of the Holy Spirit. Some say they stopped, some say they continue. And I argued for the case of continue. And, uh, and I think I was on the same page with much of us here. I will say this. As a Baptist, we had this idea that we can actually, you know, on these peripheral things... Every believer is free to make their mind up on that sort of stuff. So although I had a strong agenda on that, it won't, you know, that, that's a strong view, if it, as it were, as a continualist. If you swing more to the cessationist side of things, you're actually free to believe that. And uh, it's actually something that won't divide us on our key understanding of Jesus being God, his deity, his salvation and that. And, uh, and it won't stop us being in fellowship. It's just one of those things that we will continue to talk through and grapple with together. It's one of those things. So you're welcome to continue to, in, in, you know, to engage with the topic. Uh, and also last week we looked at the ministry of healing. And uh, the idea is that we still have a God who heals. And we don't always understand why not every single person gets healed. And, uh, and I don't know that we actually have a specific reason why that's the case. Um, I do believe that Marguerite debunked the idea that, you know, the old school idea that said, well, you don't have enough faith, you're not healed for that reason. Well, that's a little bit cold and actually probably not scriptural to be able to present that sort of idea. Uh, in, you know, so, uh, but God is still in the business of healing and plenty of people here can attest to the miraculous that God continues to do. Today, I have an interesting topic to cover. And it's something that I believe is quite important. And it's actually quite freeing and inviting if we understand it right. And um, so we're going to revisit a bit of Acts just to set the tone here. It's the, Acts 2, as you know, is the day of Pentecost. The, the Spirit has descended, the crowd has gathered and pre- Peter has preached a perla of a sermon. And then we read this. I've covered this already, but I want to build on this today. It's Acts 2.37. This is a real simple verse. When the people heard this... Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Before we read the rest, I'm going to take a deep breath because I believe Peter would have. My subject matter can be introduced by asking some tough questions. Just how exactly did the thousands of people we read about in Acts become Christians? What did they understand the gospel to be? And what things took place that proved that they were changed by it? And what should that look like today? How does it compare or complement the way we teach it today? For the record, I'm going to put a few cards on the table here. From my angle, this is where I am personally at. I am not interested in rewriting theology here today. And I'm not even going to try to do that. I'm not going to be labelled a lefty by the end of this either. 
I love what the reformers like Luther have done to revolutionize the way the gospel was preached in their time. I do also believe that they got started and we didn't really pick it up enough afterwards. Thanks to them, I believe in justification by faith and all those things. I believe the cliched diagram, you know, the one with the two cliff faces and the cross in the middle? I believe the gospel that Jesus is the entrance into God's plans and purposes and and that side of things and, and into right standing with the Father is done through Jesus. I believe that picture. I don't believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. I'm going to say that at the start. And I probably swing more to the Arminius side than a Calvinist side when I understand my salvation. So that's just my cards on the table there. Again, we're free to debate that. I do believe in people having a simple faith that is relatively quiet and private and that such a faith will inherit the kingdom of God. I worked in aged care and I loved one particular lady who who had a quiet faith. Not a lot of people visited her, so it's not like she could be as witnessing dynamo. But every day, peacefully, she would sit, she would read the scriptures, and when the time came that she knew her time on earth was done, she'd just lay in bed waiting for it to happen. It was almost like she was waiting for angels to come and get her. It was a beautiful, genuine faith. I do believe in people finding faith in their deathbed or in their final days, and the thief on the cross is a great example of that. I do believe sometimes that our presentation of salvation is zoomed in a little bit too much though. If I was to try to describe my face but all you did was zoom in like this camera on us now for Facebook Live, if all I did was zoom in and all you got is a wrinkle on my forehead and I tried to describe my face like that, it would not be the complete picture, right? You'd need to zoom out and get the whole thing and then discover I have a great face for radio. I believe we need to pan the camera out a bit to get the fullness of knowing Jesus and how that affects us and the world around us. I can't help but reject the idea that knowing Jesus is nothing more than a celestial fire insurance. And I want to take some time to examine just what it is we understand about salvation. What do we sign up for? What are we presenting? What are we asking people to get into here? And I'm going to do it from the perspective of Acts 2 and what the, the believers knew at that particular time. I'm going to use that verse I just used up there as a launching point. Just think about that verse for a moment and think about the preaching environment that was going on. Jesus has just been crucified, resurrected and ascended. He ascended to heaven about 47 days before this. Sorry, about, yeah, not, no, not, not, I got my timing wrong, but it was after, it's, it's actually, it's 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, and so you've got that time frame going on there. This is the first time ever that people are being asked to consider the claims of Jesus Christ in light of those events. Peter's answer to that question right there and then is going to set a massive precedent for generations to come, even if he's not aware of this just yet. Brothers, what must we do? Well, what must Peter say to that? 
if you had several thousand Jews standing in front of you at a religious holiday where worship of God is at fever pitch and people want to know the truth, what would you say? What exactly is the gospel that Peter is proclaiming here? And how should the audience immediately and beyond respond? Thankfully, Peter had three years of first-hand knowledge of the gospel that Jesus himself preached. Jesus didn't preach. He pointed to the ministry of what would be accomplished at the cross. But his immediate preaching sermon was not the cross, was it? Matthew 4, Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. He returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. goes on to say this, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark 1, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. As time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Luke 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. The gospel of Jesus was, in fact, the kingdom of God. Coming near. And nothing was going to get a Jew's attention more than that simple phrase. This was a focus of the Jews. There were many things that they were doing to try to see this, ta- this take place. In fact, there were a number of very deliberate ways that they were doing this. Ultimately, Jesus was speaking to all three of those, the three major ones. And he would debunk much of what was actually being approached and actually offer a completely new way. He would offer a completely different agenda and outlook through the kingdom of God and how, what it stood for. And the fact that Jesus spoke heavily and often about kingdom caused many to follow him. The manner in which he did so, the way he demonstrated the kingdom through the miracles and through the insight and through his teaching helped his cause in doing so. He drew people to him. He said, we've made repent and believe a lovely little religious concept. And this is for very good reason. There are fantastic references in the Old Testament which speak of repentance being a good response at times among the people of God. When we take the basic Greek meaning of changing our mind and mix it with the base meaning of the, from the Hebrew to be sorrowful for past things and turn attention to, to new things, you have a very good religious understanding of the word. Such a mindset speaks of returning to the Lord, but first losing the lofty demeanor of self-righteousness and all those other things that make us believe we don't need him. The Jews needed a bit of that sort of repentance if they wanted to engage with a holy and righteous God. 
when I first started preaching this series, that's pretty much the angle I took because we didn't know each other too well and I didn't want to sort of rock the boat too much. And, uh, but I knew I'd get back to this eventually. See, in addition to that, what if I told you this morning that when Jesus spoke this out, yes, he had the mantle of a prophet and he would have spoken you know, to a people to return to God in that sort of setting. But more than that, Jesus was a king speaking a language that also happened to have a military context as well. There's a strong precedent to find this. Gospel, Evangelion, glad tidings was a special word reserved for Caesar. He would actually reserve this for announcements of military success and empirical pronouncements. Such as when he took over Israel a number of years before Jesus came on the scene. And evangelists would actually proclaim the gospel of Caesar, the good news of Caesar. Go to the towns and go, the Pax Romana, the Roman Empire, the, the, the goodness that comes with the, the empire is here. It has taken over your boundaries. We are now in charge. Caesar is now your Lord and your King. He is here. Your agenda goes out the window. The Pax Romana and the way of the Roman Empire is now the way things are to be done here. One of the great scholars, N.T. Wright, reminds us of another incident as well, and he reminds us of the biography of the ancient historian Josephus, who's known of him. It's one of the major historians that Christians tap into to know the history of the time. In about 66 AD, when Acts was a relatively young document, Josephus was still a young army commander. And he was actually sent to settle down a Galilean uprising that was going on. There were some guys there, some zealots, who were thinking about doing something really stupid and attacking out of, you know, out of their league. Meanwhile, the other leaders of the nation are looking for peaceful outcomes and trying to engage peacefully with the Romans. And these guys are about to mess it all up. And Josephus himself confronted the commander of this, these zealots and comes up to him and actually urges him confronts him and actually tells him to give up his agenda and trust Josephus instead. And the exact words he uses are to repent and believe in me. This was not a challenge to give up sinning and have a religious experience then and there. It was a call to embrace a whole new way in thought and deed. The word believe is a verb you did something to prove that your mind was indeed changed. In this case, the Galileans would be required to put down their swords, turn their troops around, be ready to actively promote and be part of the agenda that Josephus proposed instead. Repent and believe had had some strong tones about it. Everything Jesus taught about the kingdom of God was presented to people who had this understanding of gospel, belief and repentance. Jesus came in like Caesar once did, proclaiming like an earthly emperor and saying the things that he would say. And he would say that his way was the one to trust. That's what Jesus was saying. He was actively challenging Israel and the entire world 
to completely thrust aside their agendas and come under his rule and do things his way. The Sermon on the Mount come under this. Every time Jesus said the kingdom of God is like, came under this. Sending the 72 who would go and what? Proclaim the kingdom, came under this. In the early stages of his ministry, he also gave the kingdom a bit of juice by tying it together with the idea of of Isaiah 61 as well. Jesus says this. This is a, another expanded version of, of, um, of what he did to announce the kingdom. He says, He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it to the attendant and sat down. And as you can imagine, the eyes of everyone is on him. And he begins by saying this, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, this kingdom came and this gospel was proclaimed. And in its wake, there was no Pax Romana or earthly rule. Instead, the things ruined by man, the things created good but damaged by evil, the loss of insight, the poverty of spirit, the human oppression, the things that showed that Israel needed salvation and so did the whole world. The kingdom was here and inaugurated through Christ and these things would now start to change. This would have an eternal context but it would also have an expression now. Everything Jesus instilled into the disciples pertained to the kingdom and its values, both in the moment there and then as well as in eternity. And these disciples were being actively trained to both announce and demonstrate that kingdom themselves. And finally, they were commissioned to keep on proclaiming once the resurrection had taken place. And we see that in Matthew 28. Make disciples, teach them, baptize them, and enjoy my presence as you go along. Lo, I'm with you always. The final recorded conversation in Acts 1 is about that kingdom. And the disciples are still thinking human-wise. When you're restoring the kingdom of Israel, Jesus. Instead, Jesus tells them to be martyrs, witnesses. People who will lay down their lives for the kingdom agenda. People who globally proclaim the good news the gospel of this agenda. People who baptize and build community that is devoted to this agenda until he returns and finishes what was inaugurated at his arrival at Bethlehem. With all that in mind, we come to Peter's answer to the the big Jewish question. Brothers, what must we do? He takes a deep breath, thinks about three years of ministry, goes, what do I say here? Probably looked at the disciples, the other apostles and goes, how do we sum this up? 
And he goes on to verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Wow. In the middle of all the stuff that the Jews were doing to try to be ready for the kingdom and do all those things of holiness and all that sort of stuff, he's going, save yourselves from that corrupt generation and look to a whole new thing. Every believer, everywhere, every generation, every nation, repent, be baptized, receive the Spirit. This is more than a religious moment and a stitching up of our eternity. This is an invitation into a way of life that changes everything in and around us now and until either we leave or He returns. Repent had a specific meaning when Jesus called it. And that meaning did not change because Peter said it. The Jews who crucified Jesus and rejected his offer of kingdom were now being called to reconsider it once again. It definitely had the idea of mourning and ceasing from sin. But it also had the call to throw aside every other agenda they've ever held. Every other thing they were trying to do to be good enough for God, throw it aside. Everything they were doing to overthrow an empire, throw it aside. Every outlook that wants to build a personal or national kingdom, throw it aside. Any temporal agenda that was driving you should no longer. You would actively change your tune and completely trust the agenda of one king and his kingdom. And see, when you proclaim this gospel, you're not trying to get someone to merely say a prayer at an altar call. Bow your head, close your eyes, say the prayer. Excellent, I'll let you go on your way. You are challenging them to change their entire outlook on life. He says, repent. And then he says, be baptized. That's step one of throwing your agenda aside and actually embracing the kingdom. 30 years ago, one theologian wrote that to preach salvation and not offer immediate baptism is a travesty. In Acts, there's evidence that this actually might have been the case there. You don't have believers not getting baptized. Everywhere you went, even Cornelius gets filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues and going nuts. And Peter goes, they've got the Spirit. They're clearly saved. I better baptize them too. That was his cue to make to actually bring him through that step. In Acts 2, if you were going to be fair dinkum with this response to the kingdom, then you would do this as a public display of that inward change without delay. No baptism classes, no waiting for some stage of perfection, but as soon as you could. 
Jesus for some reason piled these together in the Great Commission. Another way of reading Matthew 28 could be like this. As you go, make disciples by teaching and baptizing. Like the Ikea instruction booklet I had to follow this week. We did actually get a chance to worship at the Shrine of Ikea this week. The meatballs. Come back with stuff you never intended to purchase. We went looking for one thing and left with a whole heap of other stuff. And we're going, how are we going to put our luggage back in? <laughs> it was like, you open the instruction manual. As you build this, use a screwdriver and a hex key. As you disciple, teach and baptize. As a result, it was a normative thing for disciple makers in, Acts, in the book of Acts. I've done loads of research and chased scholarly opinion about baptism heaps. There are those who think baptism is actually part of getting saved and they interpret all that scriptural evidence as a reason to believe that. There are others who see this simply as a sacrament that makes a physical representation of what's going on inside. Communion certainly is that. If you take the cross out of communion, you're just having a snack. But what Jesus did, his body broken, his blood shed, gives that snack meaning. Without the death and resurrection of Christ, baptism is just taking a bath. But because of the death and resurrection, baptism has meaning, right? There are others who claim this is falsely thrown into the Scriptures and Jesus never commanded it too. I disagree with the first and last of those. I see loads of merit in the middle one. I also agree with another scholar that a refusal to be baptised may be an indicator that something's not right within either. Jesus talked about obeying his commands too. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. <laughs> he talks about those who do the will do my will and actually obey what I say. It could well be that a refusal to be baptised could be an act of disobedience and that feels counterproductive to me. But the big reason I believe baptism was promoted by Peter at this first altar call is for these simpler reasons. One, it was an action tied with the verb of belief that demonstrated all other agendas were now off the table. A Jew getting baptised was saying, what I was once is gone. And everything I was clinging to before, my Pharisaical way, my, uh, you know, my Sadducee way, my Zealot way, my Essene way, that's all gone. And I come up a follower of Jesus and an adherent of his kingdom. Peter says it's for the remission of sin here. This actually doesn't say you will be rem go into remission because of baptism. It actually says you will be baptized because of remission. Because you are made free, because you are free from your sin, get baptized to create a moment to know that that is the case. But also... Baptism fed into the idea that kingdom, the kingdom agenda 
was intended to operate in community. The creation order before the fall was a community without fault. Be fruitful and multiply was part of the creation mandate. Create community. Be part of something bigger than yourself. This was harmed after the fall. Murder, polygamy and all those things creeping in to damage what God created in that regard. But now, now that the kingdom was at hand, community had a pure outlet again. And baptism was its entry point in the book of Acts church. Repent, be baptized, receive this Holy Spirit. Billy Graham was questioned one day, when were you baptized in the Spirit? When were you filled with the Holy Spirit? And he rattled off the dates and someone deducted, didn't you come to faith that day? Exactly my point. Like it or not, the Holy Spirit is something that actually dwells within you the minute you get converted and go, Jesus is Lord. An individual who repents and wants to embrace the kingdom and to know its king and imitate him on earth till he returns is going to need a lot of help along the way, don't you reckon? Fortunately, the spirit comes alongside. The paraclete, the one who comes alongside. The idea of a, a paraclete in, 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 ancient, in ancient history was that instead of, you know, we, we think of boats being guided through channels and we think of tugboats, don't we? Something that will either tow or nudge a larger craft through, through the way to go. A paraclete didn't do that. They actually would actually get on the vessel. It was a person who got on and actually found the guy on the wheel and stood next to him and goes, yeah, there's trouble ahead. I'm not touching the wheel. You steer, but I'm just going to show you which way to go. That's what the Spirit does. He's not going to take the wheel of our life, but He's going to stand and help us navigate. He reminds us of everything the King Jesus says. And He also gives us power and gifts in order for us to be witnesses of His kingdom and be able to build up and encourage the kingdom community. The gifts are given for the greater good. The gifts are given so that we can be a witness. But a kingdom community, that's what we are, is also going to need all the help it can get as well because that sort of community doesn't exist for itself anymore. We don't come here because we want to get everything we can out of it. We come here because of what we have to give. But more importantly, we come to share what has been given to us. The Spirit becomes the glue that bonds us together. According to Paul, together we become a temple of the Lord, the place where Jesus lives by His Spirit. Together we serve as ambassadors of the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom values matter because we represent it. Together we become a priesthood. Together we become a family. I'll I'll invent a word for equal rights. A siblinghood. Together we become agents of change in the world now as we live out the kingdom agenda together. What we anticipate the kingdom in full to be, we need to be living out now as best as we can to show the world what the kingdom looks like. 
The kingdom is reconciled, therefore unity in the church matters. The kingdom is whole, therefore proclaiming the healing touch of God matters. The kingdom has complete justice, therefore being agents of change in a world where no justice exists matters. The kingdom has mercy, so should the church. The Spirit works amongst us together as we announce and demonstrate that sort of kingdom to the world. Repent, believe, be baptized, receive the Spirit. What do we, how does that sit with our understanding of our faith? I bring this out and it feels even slightly incomplete. It feels like this thing I've been, it's like an ever-expanding universe that I'm trying to actually get down to a short essay to be able to speak to the church. It's, it's the most difficult sermon I've ever had to preach this week. Part of it is in response to some people actually reflecting that, Cam, your faith seems to be expressed a little bit different to the way I do. Mine is. I hear that from time to time. Some of it, oh, you know, like you know, one of our elders calls me the Energizer Bunny type thing. You're just energetic. You just there's a passion in me that I have, and it drives me. And it's in both of us. Jen and I are going. Yeah, we rest, but we're also quite energized because something in us has taken hold. I tried to quantify it one day, but oh, yeah, who, he who has loved, forgiven much loves much, and maybe that was just the throwaway line I used, but. I actually think it's more than that. I believe that the faith that I follow is not about what I get out of this, not about just hell insurance, not about just me just making sure I don't go to hell. But I've been invited into something bigger than that. I've been invited into the kingdom of God and I believe that I am a citizen of the kingdom now for an inheritance that I will inherit down the track in eternity. I've been invited into a kingdom and I've been shown through the Gospels the way this kingdom is to be and I've been reminded through Paul's letters that the kingdom is going to be a certain way, therefore live that way now. I've been invited into an environment where you don't just say a prayer and we'll leave you to it. It's actually repent, change the way your agenda is is in life and subject it all to the kingdom. Get baptized, get full of the Spirit. And I did all that in three months. The first time they filled, water, filled the tank with water after I became a Christian, I was in. They jokingly bought out soap. I was, I was a pretty uh, feral kid. But I did anyway. I didn't have to wait to get cleaned up. Something about this understanding of kingdom that just grabbed me. See, in my home, there was no reconciliation. But in the church, I found that because the kingdom is like that. I, found, I joined a unified church that showed me what reconciliation looks like. There was no mercy in my home. There was no wholeness in my home. There was no wholeness in the world that I knew. But the kingdom was demonstrated through a local church. And I couldn't help but get in line with that agenda. 
It's bigger than just saying a prayer. I didn't sign up just to say a prayer and escape hell. I wanted life to be better now. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted, to be di- I wanted my life to be different, but also wanted the world around me to be different. And I learned that the best way to do that is through the way the kingdom operates. We repent and we become subject to the agenda of the kingdom. And then that permeates through every part of our life. I appreciate the approach that many of you have with your families. I put family time first and I make sure that my family is taken care of, that I take time out for them. And, I, and, I, and, I, um, and I, I, we do have time out. We, we have holidays and we have sp- space that I give them the best of my time. And that is completely scriptural and that is awesome because a whole family like that demonstrates the kingdom of God. An honest worker demonstrates the kingdom of God. An honest, a, a, a group of people who can demonstrate those good traits in all that we do shows what the kingdom is like and makes the gospel of Christ attractive and draws people to it. I shudder at some politicians who want to speak for the religious right and yet they have no clue what the kingdom of God is actually like and try to speak for us. The kingdom matters and I signed up to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and it changed me I believe the Jews didn't just say a prayer that day they said you know what all other agendas are off the table the kingdom agenda matters you want me to get baptized fine let's get baptized you want me to repent you want me to change my mind fine let's do it you want me to receive the spirit well I'm going to need all the help I can get yeah bring it on You want me to do community so that we can all do this together? Let's do this. That's what drives me personally. That's what I see in Acts. That's what I see life being like. That's what I see faith being like. I'm going to let the team come up and lead you in worship. I'm going to finish our book of Acts that way. And ask the quick question to your church. When I, when I mentioned that I was going to go down this path with a few people, a couple of people mentioned, is that why the Western church may be a little bit more of a consumer model rather than being consumed? And I thought, yeah, maybe. Sometimes we're very much consumers when it comes to the world of church trying to work out what we can get, try to find the best deal for our, our faith outlet, try to find the best music, try to find the best all the different things and, you know, tick off as many things on a list as we can. But the idea of the kingdom is that we are consumed by the kingdom of God. We're consumed by the Holy Spirit that drives us towards that end. And we live consumed lives, not consumer lives. I'm consumed because of what I know my faith to be. I pray that you would be too.